Welcome to the Continued Learning Podcast. My name is Dr. Fawn Carson, and I'm Senior Managing Editor at OccupationalTherapy.com. Today's podcast features our host, Dr. Dennis Cleary, discussing occupational therapy and disability services offices on college campuses with our guest, Megan Wolf. Thanks for listening. Well, hi, everyone, and thanks for joining us. I am really happy to be joined today by Megan Wolf, who is an occupational therapist. And what a title, Megan, you have. Senior Director of Disability Support Services at Front Range Community College, Larimer Campus. Um, could you just tell us a little bit about uh, your background and um, what brought you to having this really interesting job of yours? Sure. Um, So I got my master's in occupational therapy in 2013 from Colorado State University. And it was really interesting because as I was going um, through my education there, I love everything about OT. I love the foundation. I love the lens. I love everything that OT does. And I realized I didn't want to do any traditional OT. (laughs) So I um, had a discussion with my advisor towards the end of my program and was really nervous about what I was going to do in the OT field. Um, And I've always loved college. I've always loved the higher education setting. Um, And I've always loved young adults, like working with transition age young adults, you know, gosh, 16 to 24 has kind of been my sweet spot. And my advisor, um, Pat Sample, who's amazing at the time said, oh my gosh, you'll be fine. No one wants to touch that population with a 10 foot pole. (laughs) So so you'll be good. And I I don't think she was entirely right about that. Um, But I was fortunate enough that CSU has a kind of community outreach arm called Center for Community Partnerships. And they do a lot with supported education in college and then supported employment. So I did my uh, second level two field work with them and then was hired on as an OT following my field work. Um, I stayed there primarily in kind of a a supported education, so supporting students with disabilities in higher education at CSU for about six, six and a half years. Um, And then our local community college, Front Range Community College, had a job opening for a director of disability support services. And I was like, this is a very non-traditional role for an OT. And I looked at the position and I just checked all the boxes. Um, And it's interesting because we had a grant through CCP Center for Community Partnerships that extended to Front Range. And part of the position of the director role was to oversee that grant. And I was like, well, I know, I know all about that grant because I worked within it. So I think it just was kind of a seamless fit. And then I was able to really speak to how my skills as an OT kind of really fit within this role. And then um, more recently, in March, I got promoted to the senior director role, so overseeing Front Range has three different campuses, so now I'm overseeing our disability support services department for all three campuses, oh, so it's kind of kind of my trajectory, where I came, wow. how I came to be. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. So what, like when you said you checked the boxes, what are the types of skills um, that they were interested in or that were part of the job description? Oh, gosh, I don't even remember exactly what was on the job description, (laughs) but um, it was really supporting students with disabilities. So identifying the accommodations that students need, um, doing essentially like this wasn't stated in these words, but doing environmental assessments. So making sure that um, the environment, the college environment is set up for success for students. Um, There's a lot around documentation. So it was just 
seamlessly aligned, which was really, really interesting. But a lot of it is, you know, the crux of the job is um, supporting students with disabilities to be able to, you know, access and be successful in their education. And that's done a lot by figuring out what strategies work. So looking at compensatory methods, um, accommodation, so accommodating the environment, accommodating, you know, the way the occupation is done. So it just, it was a good fit. Great. Yeah, it sounds like your preparation was sort of perfect for that in terms of, um, you know, and even they probably knew what an occupational therapist was because of the grant that they'd, they'd been working with Colorado State as well. Yeah, well, I got lucky. Um, my supervisor at the time, it's recently changed, but um, her sister is actually an occupational therapist as well. So she already had a, an even better idea. So I feel like I got lucky in that way, but yeah. Gotcha. I would think, uh, and so I haven't... Uh, looked at those job descriptions, but I imagine sort of a master's degree would be a, a minimum qualification. They would probably expect yeah. people to be, you know, a, a background in rehabilitation counseling or social work tends to get thrown in there for whatever reason. And um, so sometimes but, uh, it, you know, it's really specific. A lot of them are like a master's degree in higher education or a master's degree in education. Um, so it's not as specific to like the disability side of things. I think OT is very rarely listed as, um, you know, one of the the degrees under the master's degree requirement, but it kind of falls within like, or related field, we're the related field. So. Which it seems like, and, uh, you know, sometimes when you talk to occupational therapists, there's some of our fellow uh OT practitioners out there, they're not really happy right now in some of the settings that they're working in. So it might be a good way to to look and to use kind of our, um, the, the beauty of our scope of practice that we do lots and lots and lots of different things, but in a way that um, might be a little less traditional than, than yeah. typically. So yep, exactly. Um, so that's, that's excellent. So I think most of us or all of us are probably pretty familiar with, you know, the free and appropriate public education so that you know, kids that have, or young adults uh, in in high school have, you know, 504 plans or IEPs and some of the educational mandates that are required. Um, what happens, you know, once they, they graduate or they leave high school? Um, how is that different from uh, those high school accommodations and what the, the accommodations that they're entitled to at a community college, a technical college, or a university? Sure. So FAPE, um, Free and Appropriate Public Education, actually does not apply at the higher education level. So that's really specific to K through 12. Um, and then IDEA also ends um, at high school. So IDEA also does not apply. So we don't use IEPs. Um, we don't use 504 plans as they're kind of traditionally used within uh, K through 12. And one of the big differences with accommodations at the higher education level is that K through 12 can provide modifications to curriculum. So um, reduced questions on exams or reduced amounts of homework. We typically cannot provide that at the um, college level because we have to meet certain technical standards, um, usually either set forth by the state or for more career and technical education by the accrediting agencies. So the laws that we follow um, still allow us to provide accommodations to make sure that students can equitably access their education, um, but we don't also guarantee success. So again, success is more K through 12, access is higher ed. 
Um, we do follow the ADA, so the Americans with Disabilities Act. So higher education typically falls under Titles two, three, and five. Um, Title II is specific to any colleges or universities that receive any federal funding. Um, Title III is any public place of accommodation, so that actually uh, includes any private colleges. And then Title V just prevents retaliation, so that's a little more peripherally, um, I guess, involved. Um, but that really says that we cannot discriminate on the basis of disability, so um, that enables us to provide accommodations. Um, so it, it states that post-secondary institutions must ensure effective communication and accommodations. Um, and then the Amendments Act of 2008 actually really broadened the scope of the ADA. And one of the purposes of that was to include more students with disabilities in higher education. So I've gotten some um, comments from instructors that well, we have more students than, you know, we've ever had before. We have, you're providing more accommodations than you have. You know, why is that? And that really was the purpose of the Amendments Act. Um, we do follow the sections 504 and 508 of the Rehabilitation Act of 1973, so that is in line um, with K through 12. So section, four, section 504, sorry, requires um, schools to make programs accessible to qualified students with disabilities, and then 508 requires federal agencies to make their information and communication technology accessible. So we have to make sure that all of the communications we're sending out and the technology that we're using are fully accessible for students with disabilities. Um, another one that applies that I think is not very intuitive is the Fair Housing Amendments Act. Um, this doesn't apply to me. We don't have a residential component on our um, community college campuses, but it would apply to any colleges where there are residence halls. So if students are living on campus, um, the Fair Housing Amendments Act really pertains to service animals and emotional support animals kind of within the residence hall. So another law that, that applies to college students with disabilities, but is really specific to those universities and colleges that have residence halls. Yeah, I <clears throat> when I used to do clinical placements and um, had a, a close relationship with our ADA coordinator to make sure we were following through and, you know, making sure that um, students had access to the supports they needed. Um, his, his favorite line was, you can say yes to anything, um, but if you're going to say no to anything, I need to know first and I need to make sure that you're following the law. Um, and so is is the concept of reasonable accommodations as we think about, you know, the ADA and accommodations in the workplace, does that kind of go for, for college um, accessibility as well? Yes, absolutely. They look very, very similar. Um, so anything reasonable, right, doesn't um, create a fundamental alteration in the class. So again, that's where we're looking at those technical standards. Um, so making sure that the student is still meeting the technical standards with the accommodation and in you know, 99% of cases they are. Um, and then nothing that, you know, provides any, could provide any harm to anyone, um, but then nothing that creates an undue burden. And again, 99% of the accommodations that are requested are absolutely reasonable accommodations. Finally, earning CEUs is as easy and stress-free as listening to your favorite podcast. Just head over to occupationaltherapy.com and sign up to start earning the CEUs you need online. You'll get unlimited access to hundreds of courses, including live webinars, on-demand videos, and text courses, and the audio courses you love for just $99 per year. And if you sign up today, you'll get 13 months of unlimited CEU access for the price of 12. This is an exclusive offer for our listeners, so don't wait. Go to occupationaltherapy.com and use promo code PODCAST and get 13 months for just $99. 
Join thousands of your colleagues who are already earning their CEUs online with OccupationalTherapy.com, an AOTA-approved provider of continuing education and an NBCOT professional development provider. And don't forget to use promo code PODCAST at checkout to get your free bonus month. Once again, that's OccupationalTherapy.com, promo code PODCAST, P-O-D-C-A-S-T, to get started today. Yeah, that's, um, it's, it's always, um, my experience anyway has been that a lot of times um, as we're talking about students that have accommodations, you know, in, in fieldwork or capstones, those sorts of things, sometimes it takes a lot of uh, convincing, you know, to help uh, occupational therapists in the field kind of understand that, you know, that students have the right to these accommodations um, and, uh, you know, that we're not altering expectations, you know, just kind of altering how they're going to, how they're going to meet those, those standards that, that have been set. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. And so it's also uh, just in just kind of historically, it seems that sadly, uh, the medical field seems to be one of the places that um, instructors are maybe least open to accommodations. I, I don't want you to throw anyone under the bus at, at your organization, but but uh, I, I guess it's kind of what I've what I've seen. I think our ADA coordinator at the university that I used to be at spent a lot of time on the, the medical side of things, uh, you know, making sure that faculty understood what our role was and, and making sure students had the, what they needed. Yeah, it is ironic. We have um, a nursing program and like medical assisting and stuff like that. And um, our, I feel like nationally, that's kind of an issue where um, even though these fields work with people with disabilities, they're not quite as open to having um, kind of people with disabilities employed in those types of positions. I feel like our departments have gotten better and better as the years have gone by, which is really nice. Um, but we've definitely nursing and yeah, medical assisting, vet tech, like we've had a lot of areas where it's, it's challenging. It's challenging, you know, to, you got to be really um, creative <laughs> and it's definitely an interactive process when kind of identifying, you know, accommodations that, that the student needs that aren't going to undermine those technical standards. Well, and now you have a big job where you're overseeing three campuses. So um, what kind of, are, like, are a lot of your students that you're, um, that are part of your community college, do they, they have a disabilities they're disclosing? Um, and if so, what kind of, of disabilities or what kind of accommodations are they looking for? Yeah, so again, nationally, um, about one in five, so about 20% of college students, and that pertains to community college and uni like four-year universities, um, about 20% of college students have a disability and could potentially benefit from having accommodations. So I always tell instructors, if you have a classroom of 25 to 30 students, you can reasonably expect that five or six of those students um, it has a disability, many, many are invisible and, and might need or might have accommodations. Not everyone who has a disability needs accommodations. Um, so it's nowhere near 20% of the student body that is disclosing. So students do need to self-advocate and like self-disclose. So that's another big difference from um, K through 12. But then they come to us and request those accommodations. So they do need to disclose that they have a disability to my office. Um, and then, I, yeah, I'd say about, and I just ran these numbers not too long ago, typically 8 to 12% of students are, of the student body um, are requesting accommodations, but we know that 20% of students have disabilities, which is where universal design for learning comes in really handy. Um, but we get about 8 to 12% of the student population, and 
this is really specific to front range, but the most common diagnoses that we're seeing are ADHD, um, and our numbers of students who have ADHD and are requesting accommodations has skyrocketed since the pandemic. Um, I think online learning presented a really large challenge for a lot of those students. And then I think students recognize that when they have a little bit more flexibility, I think instructors were much more flexible during the pandemic, um, that when they have flexibility, they tend to be more successful. So then we're seeing those increases of students with ADHD. Um, another thing that came out of the pandemic, pandemic sorry, was, um, I think, an exacerbation of mental health diagnoses. So we also saw an increase in the number of students with, with mental health diagnoses. So we work with students who have depression, anxiety, OCD, bipolar disorder, um, et cetera. So that's about a little over a third of our population. And then the next largest is um, students who have learning disabilities. So dyscalculia, dyslexia, auditory processing disorders, nonverbal learning disorder. Um, and I'd say about one in five of our students have a learning disability. And, and the majority of our students have multiple diagnoses. So they have co-occurring diagnoses. Some definitely just have their you know, anxiety and isolation, um, but we do get a lot of students who have anxiety, ADHD, and a learning disability. So it's never just, you know, well, sometimes it's just one diagnosis, but a lot of times it's not. Um, and the numbers of students who have autism has also really increased in the last few years, which for me, that's, that's a population that I love to work with. So that's been really cool to see. Mm -hmm. And obviously a lot more um, emphasis on encouraging people with disabilities to, to go on to, to get higher education, which is um, a really positive thing uh, for everyone, I think. Um, so the way that works is so, um, you know, they'll they'll present to you medical diagnoses. So that's coming from a, a physician, a psychologist, a counselor, um, and then you get that. And then what happens once you, um, what is your job or your office's job in terms of um, kind of validating those, uh, that information and then, uh, determining what's a reasonable accommodation. How does that, what's that process look like? So students will come to us and request um, what we call just like an intake appointment so that they can come in and really discuss um, kind of their academic strengths, academic barriers or needs, what works well for them, what doesn't work well for them, um, and just kind of the impact that their diagnosis or symptoms of their diagnosis or diagnoses um, have on academics. Um, we, documentation is interesting. So all colleges and universities have maybe slightly different standards when it comes to documentation. Um, our kind of guiding, like our national association is ahead. So the Association for Higher Education and Disability. And um, their guidance is that the student self-report should be the primary form of documentation. So what the student is reporting are their barriers, are their challenges, are their strengths, their needs. Um, that should be primary form. Secondary is our professional expertise. And I've been um, working with students with disabilities in higher education for over a decade. So I definitely have some expertise under my belt. And then tertiary is actually that medical documentation. Or um, we also accept IEPs or 504 plans if a student had those, you know, in K through 12. Um, but a student will come in and do an intake and we'll kind of 
you know, based on what they're telling us, some students know exactly what accommodations they want to request, um, not their first rodeo. They may have had accommodations in high school or at a previous higher ed institution. Um, and we'll just kind of talk about, you know, how those accommodations are going to help to remove a barrier. So it's kind of the biggest thing. How do these accommodations remove an academic barrier? Um, a lot of students, though, don't know they don't know what they don't know. So they don't know exactly what they're needing. So they'll come to us and we'll just talk through different academic areas. What does testing look like for you? How does the environment, you know, um, do you tend to have enough time to take exams? And if not, why is that? Is it taking longer to process? Is it the environment? Um, so we'll really kind of guide them through, you know, talking about different academic areas. And then that helps us to identify the accommodations that are gonna be like the most beneficial and appropriate for them. Um, we'll review documentation if they have it. If they don't, um, and this is where colleges, like different institutions differ in their policies, um, we can refer them out to get different assessments. Um, but especially when we're thinking about diversity, equity, and inclusion, Going to get testing for ADHD or for learning disabilities or anything typically costs thousands of dollars. And I'm working with community college students who typically don't just have thousands of dollars in their back pocket. Um, so that presents a huge barrier. So when we're thinking about, you know, DEI, I don't want to create more barriers for a lot of my students who are already, you know, marginalized um, just based on their identities. So um, I'll support them with kind of getting the accommodations that they need set up and getting them supported with, you know, going out to assessments and flight, finding places that have sliding fee scales or getting them connected. We have on-site counselors, which is really helpful. So they don't have um, a cost associated with, you know, being able to see a counselor. So we'll kind of do workarounds where we need to, but we'll also fully accept documentation from any medical provider. And like I said, IEPs and 504 plans, just to review what accommodations are gonna be most helpful. Well, I just think that's where an occupational therapist in your role is such a, a, a huge um, benefit to you. And you just wonder someone that has a higher ed preparation coming into this, you know, that, you know, is learning about policies and procedures and um, how, how that, um, how unprepared they probably are in terms of this. Um, so I'm glad you're doing what you're doing. Do you, do you also like, um, if a student's having difficulty, do faculty sometimes kind of say, you know, maybe you ought to go to, you know, talk to somebody over in, in disability services or how does that work? Ideally, they do. Um, <laughs> we have some faculty who are incredible about that. I get a lot of referrals from our math faculty because um, math tends to be a subject where a lot of people struggle, but um, a lot of the students that we work with they particularly struggle in math, not all of them. Um, our nursing department actually has been phenomenal about that lately, about referring students to us if they find that, you know, they're struggling or have reported that they have anxiety and it's impacting their ability to take exams and do well on them. Um, so I think that really speaks to the importance of creating those um, relationships with, you know, kind of the academic side with um, instructors and faculty and, and the importance of really, you know, for my entire office for collaborating with faculty, because the more we're out there and the more that they know us and trust us and know that we are there to support them as well, I think the more likely they are to refer students who are really needing those supports back to us. So in an ideal world, um, faculty are absolutely referring. Does it happen 100% of the time? No, unfortunately not. But um, 
I think that the more we develop those relationships, the more that does happen and, you know, to support students. So what, what kind of accommodations do you think are, are most common or what are the, you know, not that there's a, a typical, obviously person that's served by your, uh, your office, but um, what are some most frequent accommodations that, that students are receiving? by far and away extended time for exams and quizzes and then having an alternate testing location. So a reduced distraction location is, is the top. Um, and that I feel like probably goes for, I mean, I can only speak to front range, but it probably goes for a lot of colleges and universities because that accommodation um, really supports students with like a variety of barriers. So with processing needs, with um, sensory sensitivities, also another great reason to be an OT in this role, because that is huge. <laughs> um, so I mean, it just supports so many students. But other ones that we found to be really helpful are um, audio recording lectures, especially for students who have any sort of attention deficits or barriers, um, students who struggle to take effective notes. And we do work with students on those types of skills as well, because we all, always want to be helping students to build their skills. Um, but we've got some pretty cool assistive technology to help with that stuff. So we use a program. Um, we use a lot of different programs for recording lectures. One that students tend to really like is called Glean. So you can upload your PowerPoint to it, um, essentially sync the recording to the PowerPoint, put in your own notes, tag areas of the lecture that you want to go back to. So they've really developed this program with college students in mind. Um, so it's been super beneficial, but there's other recording like fireflies.ai is great. Otter.ai um, has been phenomenal. So our students have really benefited from being able to audio record lectures just to help improve their learning of the material. They're interacting with it differently. They're able to, to engage you know, in more active learning strategies with it. Um, and then another one we found to be really helpful is using text-to-speech for any like reading materials. Um, I think commonly uh, this accommodation has been well, people usually use it for, you know, people who have like dyslexia um, or who are blind or have, well, they'll use screen readers, but like low vision. Um, but we found that it's really, really helpful for a wide variety of diagnoses. Um, so students who have ADHD who struggle to stay focused and are reading the same paragraph five times and never absorbing the information. Well, let's get the information to you in multiple formats or, you know, engaging multiple senses. Um, students who really struggle with processing. So there's there's a, a lot of different reasons to use text to speech beyond what I think um, people tend to think of as, you know, kind of the most common. So that's been another really big one. Um, but we have, gosh, like a list of 60 to 70 common accommodations that students use. So it's never a one size fits all. And it's never like, oh, you have ADHD, I'm going to give you XYZ accommodations. Because we know that every diagnosis presents differently in every individual. So it's really, really based on the individual's needs and kind of what they're experiencing. So really tailoring our accommodations and our supports to what the student's experiencing and not to the diagnosis itself. Great. And would we be able to share those common accommodations with the uh, our, our listening audience on occupationaltherapy.com? Oh, absolutely. Wonderful. So yeah, there'll be some supporting documents. I didn't ask about that in advance, but wasn't sure if that was your personal list or, or if that's publicly available. Yeah, no, I can absolutely. Yep. I know you don't have an occupational therapy assistant program at your community college, but if you think about nursing, um, what kind of accommodations maybe when 
when people are in clinical environments. So, you know, say, you know, it's easy, no, not easy, but it was pretty easy to have a, you know, extended time for a test or a low distraction environment for a test. But then when you've got that, the, you know, the, 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 I don't know if it's an LPN or an RN program that you have um, with your community college, but how did, how does that translate into clinical practice? That's a great question. And that's one of the things that we've really been um, kind of working towards developing a more um, intentional process for. So we usually encourage students to look at like the job accommodation network. So mm -hmm. askjan.org, because I think that's a phenomenal um, resource for. And they've gotten, they've really upped their game in the last oh, few years. Great. I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's how they spent COVID was updating their website, but it used to be a little clunky, but now I think it's, uh, it's, it's really good. Yeah, it's a phenomenal resource for um, individuals with disabilities going into internships, clinicals, employment, but then also for the employers, which has been fantastic. Um, so I've sat down with students one-on-one -on -one before and helped students write out like what we called a letter of introduction um, to their clinical supervisor saying, hey, here's a little bit about me. Um, if students want to disclose a diagnosis, they can. That's never a requirement on our end. Um, so we really talk through you know, kind of what the um, impacts are of disclosing. So what the benefits are, what the potential drawbacks are. Um, and then students will say, and this is, this is what I do really well in, and here's where I might struggle a little bit more. Based on that, here's what's really helpful for me. Um, so that their supervisor has that information from the get-go, and it really opens those lines of communication. Um, in terms of some specific accommodations, again, it's going to be, you know, super individualized depending on, on what the person needs. Um, but being presented information in multiple formats, I think is, is a big one that I've seen. So a lot of, not a lot, but some of my students um, really struggle to uh, fully process verbal information in kind of an effective and efficient manner. So having things written down. Um, I had a student in a graphic design internship who actually had a job coach. So they were working with the Division of Vocational Rehabilitation and she had a job coach with her. So that was another accommodation that they had discussed for her internship was having that person to kind of go to and check in with. Um, sometimes having additional time for training or if there's any um, quizzes or anything associated with training, having some additional time for that has been really helpful. Um, if it's possible, nursing is a little hard, but modified schedules or a modified break schedule. Um, I had another student who had POTS and uh, was doing a clinical. So instead of standing to do documentation, we just had her sit. <laughs> you know, it can be stuff as simple as that, but that makes the biggest difference for students. My favorite uh, recent accommodation is um, I was asked to help a, a, um, one of our employees at Cincinnati Children's that was having difficulty putting her, uh, she had had to put on <clears throat> uh, just, you know, gloves for a lot of the work that she had to do and uh, had uh, a little cerebral palsy and so um, had trouble putting on, I can't remember now if it was her right glove or her left glove and, you know, went over with all sorts of billions of ideas of, of very clever accommodations and went over and the first one was like, maybe you should try your other glove first. And so she switched and went with the right glove instead of the left glove. And it was, uh, she just kind of chuckled and she said, my whole life, that's just how I've done it. But yeah, this works much, much better. So a lot of times it's those little, little simple things. Um, 
That's funny. I had a student who struggled to put on latex gloves because she had anxiety and her hands would get really sweaty, especially, you know, when she's doing some sort of clinical assessment. So we just switched to like the, I don't know the technical term, but like the powdered gloves and it just little things like that just make, make such a difference. Gotcha. There you go. And then I know lifting is one of the accommodations. A lot of times that um, some of our clinical sites were a little uh, reluctant if someone had, you know, uh, either was a, a used a wheelchair or had a back injury or something. Can you talk a little bit about that or how, how you might handle that from a, I guess, from a nursing standpoint? Yeah, we actually haven't had that come up too, too much. Um, but I would say, like, is this an essential function of the job or is this a marginal function of the job? And if it's more marginal, then oftentimes um, those functions can be reallocated. If it's an essential function, then it could be something as simple as, like, um, I mean, using some sort of lift machine or even bringing someone in to help with that lift. So having a two-person lift instead of a, a one-person lift. Um, but that hasn't come up quite as much, so... Stay tuned. <laughs> That's right. That'll be next semester. Uh, yeah, it will be now, now that we've talked about it. So um, you've talked a lot about the Americans with Disabilities Act and 504. Are there other types of federal legislation or state legislation that, that you need to make sure that you're um, accountable to as an organization, but also other things that might support students. You talked about vocational rehabilitation. I don't know if that's something that's in, yep. Yeah, we collaborate with them pretty frequently. Um, so the other one that we follow that everyone within um, higher education has to follow and education in general is FERPA, um, which is the Family Education Rights and Privacy Act. So that just says that we can't provide any um, information that isn't already readily available on like a website um, to anyone beyond the student unless we're given explicit um, permission from the student to do so. Um, this one, we really follow in terms of disability. So it's kind of on a quote unquote need to know basis. So who at the institution needs to know um, that the student has accommodations? We never share disability specific information. We'll share if a student you know, needs accommodations and what those accommodations are, if they've given us permission to share that with their instructors or potentially with their advisor, if that's gonna be helpful. Um, but another area in which FERPA has really come up is with, we do, um, a lot of work and a lot of collaboration with concurrent enrollment. So we have a lot of concurrently enrolled students. So students who are still in high school and are taking college classes or classes for college credit. Um, when students are enrolled in college classes, we treat them as an adult. So we follow FERPA very differently than K through 12. Um, so we can't, even if a student is 15, 16 years old, Technically, they're still a minor, um, but when they're taking college classes, we can't share any of that information with their parents. So that's always a little, we go over that pretty, when a student does an intake with us, um, we go over it pretty intentionally with families and parents because that is a huge, huge shift for them. Speaking as the, as the father of a now sophomore in college, um, yeah, it's amazing how little information we get about that, other than the, the bill. Uh, that's the one thing we get full access to is the, the billing for billing for college. So that part is good. Um, but I, you know, it does make sense to you know to to maintain you know students' privacy and and helping them. You know, that's part of our transition into life, right? Is to be accountable to ourselves and uh, not necessarily just to to mom and dad. Um, 
it's a nice bridge. Concurrent enrollment, especially, for, well, for all students, but especially for students with disabilities is a really fantastic bridge between K through 12 and having your parents very, very involved for the most part um, to college, you know, where the onus of responsibility is really on the student. Concurrent enrollment really provides that bridge. So I would encourage any student in high school, whether or not you have a disability to take concurrent enrollment classes because it's free college. That, that helps as well, um, absolutely. Um, so let's talk uh, a lot or a little bit about um, your occupational therapy skills and understand there's maybe another occupational therapist or maybe even a third occupational therapist that started today with you. Or occupational therapy, eventually an occupational therapist. So talk about how occupational therapy really benefits um, your job or, or how you're able to do that because you're an occupational therapist. Yeah, I think a huge piece of it is just the lens that we have as OTs is so different than the lens of someone who's coming just from, not just, but from higher education. Um, so we're really looking, I always, um, my students grumble a little bit with, you know, the theoretical models and stuff like that, but I really always do go back to like the PEO. Um, that's kind of like the foundation of what we use, you know, when we're considering accommodations, when we're considering environmental adjustments. Um, but at the end of the day, we're really, you know, supporting the student in their role as a student to be able to fully engage and fully participate um, in their classes, in activities on campus, and figuring out, you know, compensatory methods, modifications, um, you know, how can we build the student skills and strategies? How can we adjust the environment? So, I mean, this role really does come down to that. So it's shocking to me. <laughs> OTs haven't been in higher ed a little bit more, especially as we consider that students in college are in kind of a constant state of transition. And oftentimes OTs are working with people through transitions, um, you know, transitioning from high school to college and having to develop effective executive functioning skills, um, effective study skills, um, and then transitioning from well, always transitioning, you know, from semester to semester, but then even that transition that we were kind of speaking a little bit about earlier from college to the workplace. Okay, well, how do the accommodations now that you've had in college, what do those look like in the workplace? How do you request those? Um, so as an OT, we're kind of constantly working with people in transition. Um, and then I think too, thinking kind of more big picture when we think about occupational justice. You know, are the students that we're working with, students with disabilities in higher ed, um, do they have the opportunities that all of the other students have? And if not, what can we as OTs do to make sure that they do have those opportunities? So, um, gosh, there's so many different ways, Dennis. <laughs> and so, uh, and so who is the other occupational therapist that is, uh, that is in your, your group now? That is right across the hall for me. Um, so we have another OT, Shay McCowan. Um, so Shay and I actually just presented at AOTA together, which was super fun. Um, so Shay does a lot. She's a coordinator, a disability support services coordinator. So she does a lot more like one-on-one -on -one work with students. So doing a lot of the intakes. She does a lot with assistive technology. Um, so we get to do assistive. So again, another great fit. Um, 
but assistive tech, you know, for students to be able to get their accommodations and implement their accommodations. Um, she'll do assistive technology evaluations. So to see, you know, what type of tech, and a lot of tech is mainstream, and people just don't know about it, um, but what type of tech is going to really support students, again, in their role as a student. Um, and then she'll do kind of ongoing support meetings. So again, supporting students with developing the skills and strategies that they need to be successful in college, but then even beyond. So I talked about executive functioning. How do you effectively manage your time? How do you effectively manage your medication? Like if you have ADHD and you're not taking your medication um, consistently, well, that is absolutely going to impact your kind of ability, you know, to perform well as a student. So how can we support you with effectively managing your meds so that you know, as a student, you're able to really kind of focus on the things that you're needing to focus on. Um, and then we did just um, have a level two fieldwork student start today. And she, I, yeah, I'm so, so excited. She's going to be phenomenal. Um, she did a level one with us in the spring. So it's a nice transition into level two, but she'll get to work one-on-one -on -one with students, um, you know, who are requesting accommodations and needing supports. And then we actually have an OT-based supported education program through our department as well, where we provide kind of a higher level of support to students who um, have some needs that go kind of above and beyond accommodations. So she'll get to work with those students as well in that program. So those well, that would be more mentoring, social support types of stuff, or what, what would happen in that? Yeah, so we really, again, because it's OT-based, um, get to look at students very, very holistically with that. So we'll kind of, we use the COPM, a modified version of the Canadian Occupational Performance Measure. Um, and we look at students kind of across 10 areas. So executive functioning and academics are just two of those. We'll also look at um, kind of general health and wellness, independent living, stress and anxiety management. That's a big one. <laughs> um, accessing the community, so stuff like that. And we'll really use the COPM to hone in and you know, determine which of those areas a student is needing and wanting to focus on the most, um, and then develop kind of like an intervention plan. We don't call it that just because it sounds kind of clinical, um, but we'll develop like a coaching plan um, with the student to really um, develop skills and strategies, utilize assistive tech and apps, and then connect them to other community and campus resources. Um, you know, just to support their performance in those areas. So that is much more, I mean, I think it's all OT, um, but that is is really that supported ed program is very OT based. Wonderful. So would would Shay consider what she's doing occupational therapy? Does she, how does, how does that work? That's a great question. Did I stump the band? <laughs> I would like to assume that yes, <laughs> she would. Um, I mean, we have conversations, you know, pretty frequently about how OT this role is. Uh, we've both maintained um, our OT like registration and licensure. Um, so I, you know, I'm going to say yes. I'm going to ask her after this, but I'm going to say yes, <laughs> she, she would. <laughs> Get have a survey and uh, see who answers it. So was, was your AOTA talk well attended? Was it uh, a lot of people interested? Yeah, so that one was actually um, a little more specific. So we work with a lot of students who have, you know, intersecting identities, um, oftentimes intersecting marginalized identities. So we work with a lot of students who are gender diverse. So students who are gender non-binary or transgender or, you know, there's um, a lot of different identities kind of under that gender diverse umbrella. Um, and we know that the um, 
number of students who have disabilities and the number of students who are gender diverse, there's there's a little bit of a correlation there. So, and I can't remember the exact number, but it's something like five times the number of students, not just students, I'm used to saying students, um, but with, with people who are on the autism spectrum, they're five times more likely to also be gender diverse. So huge correlation. So there is a very large population of students that we work with who are gender diverse. Um, so we kind of took an OT approach, like used an OT lens to kind of look at what are the experiences and kind of the barriers and needs of young adults who are gender diverse and um, what can we do as OTs to support this population? So that's what our AOTA um, presentation was was based on. And it, it was really well attended. Um, it was at the end of the day on Saturday. So we weren't sure what that would look like. But yeah, um, but it was fantastic. Shay, that was her first time presenting at AOTA and she did a phenomenal job. So we're really excited about it. And I think um, as part of, I'm also a PhD student um, and as part of my dissertation, um, we're gonna actually do a qualitative study looking at gender diversity in college, gender diversity and disability, um, kind of the intersection of the two in college. Awesome. So were there a lot of other OTs that are involved in college campuses that came to your talk or? Or not because it wasn't. You know, I think it's still such an emerging practice area. So maybe. <laughs> like it might, if you don't have a, an SIS, that might be something to talk to um, AOTA about, uh, about, you know, trying to get lots of other OTs. Because I do think it's, you know, just such a phenomenal role for our profession. And um, and you are the the prime example of that. So we need to make make sure there's lots more of yous that are out there. So there's actually some really great resources for OTs in higher ed or for OTs who are interested um, in getting into higher education. So there's the OTU Collaborative, which was started by, um, oh gosh, I hope I remember all of them, Drs. Karen McCarthy, Karen Kepner, who is a big, big name in this area, um, John no, Eichler. Um, so there's a few, there's there's quite a number of them. And then there's a couple of different Facebook groups. I know Facebook is a little outdated for the youth these days, but that's okay, showing my age. All the, all the faculty will be on there. No, just kidding. <laughs> exactly. Um, but there's an aspiring practitioners in colleges and then um, an OT services at the third level. There's actually um, quite a few OTs in higher ed across the pond. Um, so a number in Ireland. So I'm like, we should take a field trip and see how they do things out there. Part of that, part of your PhD. Some... Uh, you know, I'm trying to convince my advisor and he hasn't gone for it yet. Growth mindset. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, there's, there's a, a, you know, quite a few resources. Um, the OTU Collaborative does webinars every couple of months um, just for anyone who wants to attend. I um, presented a webinar back in August. Um, so they're, they're a fantastic resource. And then I've had a number of OTs um, kind of reach out to me and ask about this field. And there's one in particular just a couple months ago who was working in an assisted living facility. And because our skills are so transferable, um, she actually uh, had just gotten a job as a coordinator at um, University of Colorado in Boulder and wanted to chat about that. So I think that you know, we're emerging. It's it's growing slowly, but there's there's definitely resources and, and a lot of opportunities. Awesome. And we'll have the contact information for OTU um, as part of the occupationaltherapy.com package as well. So um, so I 
I think you mentioned a little bit about universal design. Can you talk a little bit about how do you, do you talk with other faculty about that, but maybe just describe that a little bit. And, and maybe there's a lot of things that are out there that, you know, we're, what I, I like now is that, you know, even in terms of designing, you know, online shores for courses and those sorts of things, there's a lot of tools that help us understand as we're building how accessible the features are that we're using. But I don't know if you get to train people in that or what all that entails. Not as much in that we do have an AT and accessibility um, kind of specialist. She's really an expert on our team and she's trained under OTs, believe it or not. I know. Um, so universal design, we call it kind of like universal design for learning, UDL, or universal design for higher education, UDHE. Um, and it's really this idea that is, you know, what is necessary for some people can be beneficial for everyone. So my favorite example, and this is definitely something that we work to like educate faculty and staff on is, hey, let's build um, kind of UDL principles into your course from the get-go. Let's be proactive about this and not reactive so that when someone, um, you know, I have a student who is deaf or hard of hearing, you know, when they come along, now we're having to backtrack and closed caption everything. Let's do it from the start. Um, but that's my favorite example. So for um, a student who is deaf or hard of hearing, they have to have closed captioning to be able to equitably access, you know, the video or access what is being said. Um, but it's still super helpful for everyone. Like, I don't know about you, but I have captions when I'm watching TV on. 90% of the time, my kids get mad. So I, that's the other 10%. Especially the, the British uh, murder mysteries that I like to watch. Otherwise, I, <laughs> exactly. I love Scotland. I just can't understand what they're saying. Much Scotland's the my favorite. Yeah, it's a um, country. My, I don't know if you can see my triptych uh, in the background is, is of Scotland. I love Sky. Um, but yeah, so having captioning necessary for some people to be able to access their education beneficial potentially for everyone to be able to read along with what you're hearing and get um, that input. And again, you know, multiple ways using multiple senses just helps with that processing and understanding and comprehension. So let's build that into courses again from the get-go or allow students to um, access the content in multiple formats, allow students to demonstrate their knowledge multiple different ways because we're humans and not, you know, the same thing that works for me might not work as well for you, but we might have kind of, you know, we have both have an understanding of the content, but maybe I do well with tests and you do much better with an essay or with that like oral presentation. So kind of the foundation. Um, University of Washington has a phenomenal program called the Do It program that really focuses on accessibility and universal design um, for higher education. So I would also definitely encourage anyone who's interested in that to check out the Do It program through the University of Washington. And we'll have a link to that as well. Yes. Just lots, lots and lots of links. <laughs> so speaking of sort of universal design, um, when I think about lifestyle redesign, I really do think it's something that, you know, everyone needs access to. <clears throat> do you, how do your, how does your, your community college address wellness for, for students? Because I just think that that's such a, a, a um, good preventative strategy in terms of helping, um, you know, students, you know, uh, meet their needs so that they, they're able to meet their educational demands. No, it's huge. And I think that, um, I mean, we've seen, like I mentioned earlier, you know, the numbers of students who have mental health diagnoses and are, are really struggling um, with mental health generally has skyrocketed. So what can we do, um, you know, to kind of 
hit at that at, at the foundation. And I know that there's a lot of OTs um, within mental health within universities. That's a big piece of, um, oh gosh, University of Dublin or Trinity College, one of the ones in Ireland. Um, but we at Front Range have uh, free counseling for all of our students. So any student who's taking credits at Front Range has access to counselors. So free counseling, whether it's on-site or remote. So we want to make sure, you know, we're meeting students um, kind of where they're at. I think this is something that I would love to do. Um, we don't currently have this in place, but there's there's been talks. But even having um, like a one or two credit class for when students initially start, almost like a seminar class, really focused on health and well-being and how to effectively, you know, manage your life as a student. So again, looking at a lot of executive functioning and time management, but how do you have that um, occupational balance as well and really integrate that into your day-to-day -day as a student? I know that there's a number, I think, um, Oh gosh, Cleveland State University, which is where Dr. Kepner, um, I mentioned her earlier, is. Um, I believe they have a, a class kind of devoted to that and really, you know, supporting students. I, I love, you know, the lifestyle redesign stuff too. Um, and that really is kind of the foundation of a lot of those classes. So something that I really want, I'm hoping <laughs> that we can get to because it's hard. It's a hard transition. One of the things USC has done really well is, so um, they have OTs that are, embedded in their, like, even in their health plans so that, you know, um, the student health insurance is going to cover, you know, a certain number of OT visits. And, um, you know, I just think it, it makes such good sense. We bring just different tools to the table than, you know, maybe a, a typical, you know, counselor, social worker, even PhD psychologist would bring to the table that, you know, um, can be kind of a quick in and out potentially for, you know, just helping students develop some strategies. Um, I know. I wish that was universal. Like it's such a huge thing for OTs to advocate for is to be integrated within, you know, the university um, health center, health network. I'm sure now that we've been doing all this, this chatting about your job and how cool it is, I'm sure there's a lot of our, our listeners um, or, you know, either students that are interested in it or, or practitioners. So if, if there's maybe an OT student that feels like maybe they have a need for accommodations and they don't feel like they've received sort of the accommodations that they need or um, what's, what are some recommendations that you might have for that student, you know, to better work with faculty and specifically for their Office of Disability Services? Yeah, so every university or every college is going to have an office like mine. Um, they're all called something different. So some of them are like accessibility services. Dis I mean, ours is disability support, but it might be Office of Disability Services. Um, I know Colorado State University is student disability center, so SDC, but I would just get on your college's website and, and just kind of start looking at um, that page specifically, whatever it's called, disability services page. Um, oftentimes I'll get students who come to us who have already been a student for a couple of semesters and haven't had accommodations and then they come into my office and are floored like I had no idea that this was stuff that I could get and this is going to be so so helpful so I think even just having a meeting um, with a coordinator or a specialist again they're all called different things um, just to talk about what that looks like and, and what you're needing it doesn't mean that you're necessarily if you're still on the fence about using accommodations you're not necessarily tied in, um, but I, I think it's better to have accommodations in place in case you need them than to not have them in place and, and end up needing them. 
Um, and then I encourage students, and a lot of my students do this, not all, um, but again, to write that letter of introduction to instructors. 99.9% um, .9 of the time, it goes over so, so well because the instructor gets a better, or the faculty professor um, gets a better sense of who the student is and, you know, what does work really well for them and kind of what they're needing. And then oftentimes my students will just bullet point, this is what works for me. Um, I do better with written information as opposed to verbal great. So now the, the instructor or the professor knows that. Um, but yeah, I would say just kind of just meet, you know, just to see what um, disability services could potentially do. Absolutely. And then for practitioners that um, maybe are looking to, to do something a little different, um, what is your recommendation for, um, you, you mentioned there's all different types of, of offices and different names that are out there. So if they're interested, maybe start just going to um, a university job posting and seeing what's out there? Yes, I think oftentimes OTs, especially newer practitioners, will pigeonhole themselves into a position that specifically says, this is for an OT, this is an OT position. Um, but with our skills and our lens, there's so much more that we can do beyond just those specific like OT positions. So again, we're, we're the, or related field, <laughs> that's us, even if it doesn't specifically mention OT. Um, but I would look at higher, yeah, higher ed, you know, job openings, positions. Um, and even if you are able just to get some experience working with young adults with disabilities, that is a huge opening uh, into this field. And again, really identifying um, a lot of those transferable skills, which again, align really, really well. So even looking at what do these offices do um, and how do my skills as an OT, even if I haven't worked in this setting before, how do my skills align with what you know, what is required of the positions. And then I think the other big thing too is um, if, if you're really interested in breaking into higher education as an OT, kind of speaking the language of higher ed and um, really identifying how OT is a quote unquote like value add to higher education. So speaking to two of the big words in higher ed, retention and completion. <laughs> uh, leadership is always looking at that. So how is an OT with that lens, can I support um, my students with, um, you know, persisting semester to semester and then being able to complete their degree programs? How can I support them with um, kind of their mental health needs? Because again, across the nation, that is a, a hot button topic. And then how can I support diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts? That again, DEI is huge in across the nation, but in higher ed um, specifically. So as an OT, how can I support those efforts? So again, speaking the language um, you know, of higher ed institutions is really helpful too. Well, Megan Wolf, Senior Director of Disability Support Services for all of Front Range Community College, not just Larimer Campus. So, <laughs> Not just Larimer. Thanks so much for being with us today. I know I learned a lot, and I'm sure a lot of our, our listeners learned a lot as well. So thanks so much. And if you have for, further questions, um, you can uh, contact us. And uh, if you go to occupationaltherapy.com, uh, a lot of the links that Megan talked about will be there. So thanks, everyone, and have a great day. Thank you. Thank you.